Hey everyone, and welcome back to Creative Consumption. I'm Daniel Schwartzberg, host of the show. I hope you all had happy 4th of July and that you all got to celebrate in a way that made you happy. I know I'm looking forward to seeing some family this week that uh, I haven't seen in a while and to being with some people that I don't get to see very often. So before we get to the interview, just a reminder that if this is one of the first episodes you're hearing, thank you for listening. And if you'd like to hear some of the earlier interviews, those are all available in any podcast app when you search for Creative Consumption and on our website, which is creativeconsumptionpodcast.com. On the site, you can also send us feedback about the show. Uh, Nathan and I would love to hear from you and uh, read your thoughts. And if you're enjoying the episodes you've heard and think you know some friends who might also enjoy it and you wouldn't mind recommending it, we'd love to get more people listening and uh, Nathan and I would really appreciate that. So thank you. So today's guest is Charlie Alterman. Charlie is a Broadway music director and supervisor, a conductor, orchestrator. He has worked on shows like the original production and later the Kennedy Center production of Next to Normal, the 2013 revival of Pippin, the out-of-town productions of the new musical Halftime, and many more. He is a staple at the St. Louis Muni, and in one of his most recent projects, Charlie headed to Vancouver, where he was a music consultant and vocal coach for the NBC show Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist. Actually, when we recorded the interview back in the fall of 2020, Charlie had just arrived to Vancouver and was in the middle of his uh, mandatory quarantine before starting to work on the show, so you, you might hear that reference during the interview. Charlie's experience in all areas of music and theater, from conduction, orchestration, direction, and coaching, gives him so much knowledge to draw on, and it's one of the big reasons that I was excited to talk with him. He's also one of the most supportive people in his industry and in general, which everyone who has worked with him will absolutely attest to. I love listening to how Charlie described being a translator between different areas of a production, and we also had a really great conversation about how digital and live theater are starting to converge and what that's meant for how we will watch new forms of theater. And I also, I really think this episode reminded me of something that I know I have to keep more front of mind, which is the fact that when we watch something, there's always so many people behind the scenes that aren't immediately visible when we see or listen or just are experiencing something and that those people are so integral to the way something comes together and they deserve all the recognition for the work that they put in for that. Long story short, Charlie left me with a lot to think about and I'm excited for you to hear him too. So I'm gonna get out of the way and here's Charlie Ultraman. Charlie, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, I'm so thrilled to be here. I mean, I'd be thrilled to be here anyway, but especially during my Canadian quarantine, it's like great to have something to do. <laughs> <laughs> yes, as as you wait it out, as you get ready for this, the, the exciting new process to start, for sure. It's so surreal, yeah. So one of the first things I love to start with is kind of asking everybody, because like we heard you have such a, such a CV there, such a resume. And while you've definitely worked primarily as in certain fields, I still love to know when people introduce themselves, how that goes. So if I were to ask you what you do, what do you say and what title do you lead with? You know, it really depends who's asking, because what I do is um, very specific to the theater world. And now I guess I'm branching it out into the TV world a little bit, but uh, it's a position that a lot of people don't really understand or know what it is. So if it's someone 
who's in the industry or probably has been in theater at some point in their life, I say, oh, I'm a music director. Um, when I'm talking to lay people, I sort of say, oh, I'm a musician, but I mostly work in theater. Uh, you know, I'll say I conduct Broadway shows, I, but it's a tricky, it's a tricky position to explain because it involves a lot of stuff, a lot of things that aren't quite tangible, um, unless you really understand how the process works. So I'll often say that if it's a lay person, I'll often say, you know, when you go to see a Broadway show, there's that, you see the back of that head right in front of the stage, waving their arms in the air. That's me. And that's the most visible part of being a music director, but it's also working with cast. It's also working with composers. It's also working with, um, directors and choreographers. A friend of mine put it perfectly, who was trying to describe the position of fellow music director. And he said, you're basically, when you're a music director, you're like an English to English translator who can interface with all the departments and language that they understand. So you can talk to a choreographer in languages they understand, a director in language that they understand, an actor in language that they understand, a musician in language that they understand, a music copyist in language that they understand, but and synthesize all of these different departments to create, you know, a whole that feels complete, which I thought was a great way to describe it. But uh, I love that. And do you yeah. think that talent of being the translator and being that intermediary between the departments, is that something you've discovered that most music directors have innately? Or is it something that when you decided that music direction was how you wanted to focus your talents that you've developed over time to kind of have that uh directories or choreographeries you know i think it's twofold i think that there's something in i think the ability to be a translator and to th to think of the job that way is innate but i think the actual language does sometimes have to be learned you know i came i came from a, a sort of a unique perspective although not entirely because i think a lot of music directors do get the start there do get their start this way um we're all growing up and going through high school and college. Uh, I sort of fell into music directing. I didn't a hundred percent think of it as a, a specific thing that I would want to do, but all growing up, I played piano and I was very musical and I had a huge love for music, both theater music and non-theater music. And I had a love for theater. I loved acting and, you know, loved acting in musicals cause I could sing, but also loved acting, acting in straight plays. So I came at it very versed in the world of theater. Um, and then around high school, it was kind of like, hey, would you want to try this music directing thing? Um, we know you play piano, et cetera, et cetera. And I kind of was like, oh, this is great because I can, you know, interface all of these different skills. So once I started music directing, I already understood a lot about the process of how a show is made. I think there are some music directors who come more from a musical background and then, you know, for instance, start getting work in the theater because they're, you know, so, so, so highly talented as players. And then they end up sort of learning the theatrical stuff later. But even from where I was coming from, still learning the nuances of and it's a lot of trial and error and it's a lot of like having discussions with different people that at first you may not understand and probing for more information and then understanding their shorthand. But, you know, if you've been in a show and worked with a choreographer, then you sort of know where they come from. And, um, it's sort of, for me, what's exciting about music directing is the ability to synthesize all of these different things, right? Cause it's not just about the music. It's not just about making it sound good. It's about the music serving the story, you know, so you're integrating a lot of different things because ultimately it's about what's happening on stage and not that it's not important what's happening in the pit, 
But the goal isn't for people to tap their toes and say, listen to that swinging band. I mean, maybe in an isolated moment, if that's what the moment is about, then yes. But it's about contributing to this overall storytelling and this overall whole. And so it's figuring out how that can fit in. And I end up using, it's funny too, where as much as I say it's about translating, and a lot of times it is, a lot of times it is, you know, there's an emotional swell here. And so you have to just turn turn that into on the on the page and the music for the band having a crescendo. But I think for the players, the more they understand about the story they're telling, the more that informs it too. And kind of growing up in music and even one or two of my earlier mentors were like, they don't want to know about that. They just want to know if it needs to be louder or softer. And I was like, okay, I guess I better not say that. I'll, they're going to be like, who's this weird guy? But I found the more I get into it and the more I work with musicians who really are operating at a very, 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 very high level, they do want to know. You know, I just did a um, very short-lived but beautiful revival of Next to Normal in Washington, D.C., and they're, uh, the musicians there were incredible. And it's such a uh, it's such a thrilling score. It's like, I think, one of the best scores that's ever been written for the theater. And it's so, it, the story is very intense emotionally, and it cycles through all these different emotions, and, um, and the score supports them all perfectly. And there are moments there where, um, you know, I'll be, I've sort of learned over time with that show that it actually is helpful, you know, saying to a, to a cellist who has a, you know, a vibrato moment, if I say, keep it tighter, keep it more intense, they're like, okay, my arm's tired, but why, you know? And then as soon as I say to them, it's like, she's at her breaking point. She's wanted to say this for years. She's about to explode. The whole world is crashing in her. She's about to have a breakdown. And you're that nagging thing in her voice, inside her mind that's buzzing. They're like, oh, I know exactly how to play that, you know? So it's like the oftentimes in a weird way, despite my whole thing about being a translator, using the same language for everyone is sometimes also the most coherent because really great artists are interested in bringing that to the table too. Yeah. And that, and that emotionality, I think that, that language of emotions, I think is something that is visceral, right? And I, mm-hmm. I like the fact that especially if it comes to physical motions, like a bow, like drawing a bow, or it's, it's striking percussion or doing some kind of um, physical action, which is necessary in most music to produce the sound or to get it to come out, Yeah, tying that emotionality to their physical actions, that's, that's really cool to hear that you're able to get that performative nature of music. Oh, and you can hear it too. You can hear even someone just beating a drum. The You can feel their intention in it. I mean... It's fascinating to me to unlock the psychology of that it's where, you know, digital approximations can do a lot, but they can never quite substitute because the emotion is what's missing. You know, you can approximate quite a lot. You can capture a performance digitally. You can manipulate things to create the same kind of build and the same tension. But, you know, when someone's playing from a place of emotion, it, it you hear it in the playing and you hear it in the voice, too, you know. I'd say this to singers all the time. It's like, I'm, I'm like, I can close my eyes and tell what facial expression you're making by listening to your voice. If you're singing a happy lyric, but you don't have a smile on your face because you're focusing on the sound, I can, I can hear the pretty sound, but I can't hear the joy. And then if you smile, I can hear it in, in the way that, you know, in the way that your voice comes out. So, but it's also about realizing that it, it's always in service to the story. And that sounds like such a cheesy gimmicky thing to say. I even hate using those words, you know, like it's all about the story. It's all about the storytelling. It's all about the emotion. It's all about the journey, but it really is. Yeah. You know? And, um, even like an epiphany for me recently is, you know, like with written music and people being so literal about what's on the page. And I do think there's, 
validity and being literal, don't get me wrong, but it's that thought and it's, you don't really realize it until you yourself are doing it. And you know, a lot of, I've done some shows lately where I've been the one responsible for doing transcriptions from a demo recording or, you know, in, in some way, shape or form being the one creating that piece of music and making decisions about how are you going to write this out and realizing that even Beethoven, you know, even like the greats hundreds of years ago, uh, they weren't sitting in a vacuum with a pad and paper and saying, I want an eighth note. I want a quarter note. They had a phrase in their mind and then they had to use the rules of music theory to find a way to write it down, to, to impart that information to someone else. And you can put a lot on the page with what we have in music theory, but at the end of the day, still Beethoven had an impulse to create something, found a way to write it down, hoped that people would understand what he meant from the page. But still, if he was conducting it himself, he would have told them 20 other things about how to phrase it. So, you know, it's like the sheet music is always a guide. But at the end of the day, it's still about what the music's doing. I remember a conversation once with um, Michael Starobin, who is the orchestrator for Next to Normal and, you know, Sunday in the Park with George and a million other incredible. He's unbelievably, unbelievably talented. And a thing that always stuck with me is he said, you know, I feel like in a way my job is more to orchestrate the lyrics than the music. You know, it's like I have to really make sure that the story's being told. It was, it, it was just a very insightful thing to hear an orchestrator say. Yeah, especially because, like, like we've been saying, music is so much tied to emotion, right? And like it mm-hmm. expresses the emotion, but it shouldn't cloud the message behind it at the same time and i think that's a mm. balancing act right and i have such respect yeah. for 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 people in your position right as the music director the composer the orchestrator all those people who have to ride that line between i want to pull this emotion out of people but i also can't let them ignore the story being told yeah. and that the lyrics do are an essential component of that story because they're giving you information and it's a different kind of information and hopefully it's all synthesized into a whole exactly uh the other thing he said that always stuck with me is he's like you know of course you want interesting sounds and interesting grooves and things that you know the music geeks will listen to and go oh that's so cool what he did but he said at the end of the day in a show like next to normal if the audience is sitting there tapping their toes and sort of enjoying the groove we're not doing our job he was like then we're screwed then we're not landing the story because that's not what the, the story isn't about sit back and enjoy this bop you know <laughs> Going back, you you mentioned that music direction was something you sort of maybe fell into a little bit more than kind of oh, yeah. shows. Um, and just, I would love to know, growing up and kind of your earlier inspirations, what are the things you remember watching or reading or just in general that you were taking in when you were growing up that inspired you creatively or just kind of you remember impacting you? I mean, there's a bunch of random and specific things. I will definitely say I grew up you know, in the suburbs of New York. So Broadway was always geographically close, but also, you know, it was really expensive and lives were complicated. So we didn't go a ton, but we went a couple times. And, um, I remember seeing, I think my first Broadway show was Peter Pan with Sandy Duncan. And, um, I remember just thinking like, this is the coolest thing ever. Like I, I was just like, this is a thing. Like you can, there's music and there's, dancing and sets and costumes and this cool story and she's flying over the audience and what is going on and I didn't I remember it wasn't a very specific 
it wasn't like me looking at the conductor or looking at an actor. It was it was sort of a generalized emotion. But I remember specifically thinking like, oh, I want to do this. Like I'm going to I need to be a part of this yeah. at some point. Like this is just a cool thing. Um, and then certain cast albums along the way resonated with me a lot. But then I also all growing up, it's funny, too, because as much as I do love musical theater and I've always kind of it's always professionally sort of been my thing musically my taste like i'm not a person who really sits around and listens to cast albums like i like music i like theater music in the context of a show but when i'm listening to music i when i'm consuming my own music i usually listen to other stuff i listen to pop i listen to r&b and soul i listen to jazz I, you know i'm like kind of all over the place uh it's a rare cast album that i'm like Ooh, I'm, i mean of course i'll listen to an album when i'm learning music if i'm going to do a show that's already exists if i'm going to do like a revival or something of course i'll go listen to it to get a sense of what the songs are and how they've been done before but sure so then who are the the pop artists or the jazz artists or people that you would listen to to kind of feed your the other musical half of you that just loves music oh god i mean so many over the years Joni mitchell was a huge one for me that I keep coming back to Stevie wonder is a huge one that I keep coming back to. Um, Shaka Khan is a huge one that I keep coming back to. Um, I mean, I'm all over the place. I'm all over the place. And I also just love whatever bubblegum teeny boppery pop is on the radio at any given moment, just cause you know, yeah, I like, a, I love, I love a current bop. Um, <laughs> and some of those stay in my, you know, bag of tricks and some of them evaporate by the next season. But I'm, I feel like I'm mostly listening to whatever's like, you know, current quote unquote, but, but I'm, I'm all over the place. Is music the media that you, you take the most of, even when you're not working on a show that it's also like outside of shows? Probably. Although what's funny to me is I think my brain is attracted or drawn or whatever enough to music that it's very hard for me to just kind of have music on unless you're like at a party and it's just on quietly in the background for atmosphere and you're not, and it's not quite loud enough to pay attention to it. But I have friends who, for instance, will like be working, you know, like they'll be like sitting at their desk in their office or they'll be doing emails or they'll be writing something and whatever, whatever it is, whatever their version of work is. And they'll have music on. And I'm like, I cannot have music on when I'm doing emails or doing whatever. Cause I just get distracted by it or the lyrics of the song end up in my email by accident. And I'm like, what, how did I do that? Why did I do that? <laughs> a lot of friends of mine always have their headphones in around New York and always have music on on the subway. And again, I get kind of sucked away by the music and drawn into it. So it's hard for me to, if I'm just getting from point A to point B and I'm trying to stay on track with my day, it's hard for me to do that. So if music is something that you obviously you love but it's something you have a harder time listening to casually or just because you kind of want to turn something on and not be thinking about it what is there something that you are able to enjoy that it it kind of lets you turn off that part of your brain tv lets me turn it off a little more although even still i think it's more just that i have a hard time taking stuff in auditorily like even if i have a tv on in the background and i'm not paying attention to it i'll still kind of get drawn into it and let you know sometimes it's like the news and i can kind of let it be noise i always joke if i'm in new york it's so funny when i'm anytime i'm out of town the tv is pretty much never on except those rare moments that i'm going to sit and watch tv in new york it's like the second i get home i just like turn on new york one and it's just on in the background because it's like perfect background noise it feels like they're my roommates they're my friends but that also tends to repeat on a loop every half an hour so sometimes i'll be like even if i'm not really paying attention to it i'll be like wow this is the fourth time i've heard this story i need to turn that off um i think tv is sort of my unplug and it's interesting during 
um, during the lockdown, I've been, and I've never been one to consume a ton of TV, but like a fair amount. Um, but I think when I'm working typically, you know, the days are a little long and a little intense. So it'll be a long rehearsal day or a two show day or something like that. And I'll come home and I'll be pretty drained and I'll be like, I need to just unplug my brain for a little bit. And that's when I'm thrilled to sit on the couch and turn on like, you know, an hour of TV before I go to bed or whatever. When the lockdown started and everyone's like, just stay home and watch Netflix. I was like, I can't possibly watch TV right now. I'm going stir crazy. I need to do something. I need to do something. Like I am a doer. I don't like to just sit around. Um, I'll do it when it's an unplug, but I'm like, I have nothing to unplug from right now. Right. You know, it's like, I can't say like, oh, my day was so crazy and so hard and I'm so wiped out. So I was finding it weirdly triggering that where it was like hard for me to watch TV. I would I would sit on my couch and put on something on Netflix and I'd be like, I can't sit here. I can't just do nothing right now. And I'm definitely look when I watch TV and when I watch movies, I am sort of I think that creative mind is still like firing and I'm still looking at it both as a consumer and as sort of a critical person of, oh, how did they make this? How did they make that choice? I mean, I do always joke. It's like once you know how the sausage is made or whatever, it's it's hard to 100 percent just sit and enjoy something. I'm usually pretty good at trying to allow myself to go there. And I think it's a testament of great art when it really still takes me there. It's oddly sometimes easier for me in a theater, even though that's the one that I really know. But there's other times when my I work in this business brain pulls me out of it. So a perfect example, and this is a spoiler alert to anyone who hasn't seen it, but also unfortunately it closed because of COVID. I don't know if you saw the inheritance, but, um, but so the end of part one, there's this very beautiful, very moving thing that happens, uh, where spoiler alert, turn it off. If you don't want to know ghosts, but they're played by actors start appearing and at first it's like one or two and it's very moving and then it just becomes more and more and more. And it's this very overwhelming moment of seeing how many ghosts are at this house and how many people, you know, and there's implications of why they were there and the AIDS crisis and whatnot. So it's very moving and I'm welling up with tears and I'm moved. And then my brain immediately goes to, wait a second, are all of these people on equity contracts or everyone? If this is like, I'm like, how are they paying for this? Where do they get dressed? How do they, are they considered extras? Did they do a special thing with equity? Are they students? Are they gaining points? How did they get that? Like my brain just immediately went to the like, suddenly there are 20 more people in this show. And how are they doing that? And how are they making the numbers work? And ba, 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 ba. And do they have a later call? I mean, I was like uh, the 8,000 things that started going through my brain right there that completely pulled me out of the play that I don't think most people in the audience would have experienced that. That was definitely like a silly little insider's moment for me but I was like whoops you know I was like Charlie think about it later just enjoy this moment I think that is a struggle for people who and like not in a bad way it's yeah you have so much experience in that field I mean yes primarily in music but I mean just in general in the theater field and in the the world of professional theater where those kind of things like contracts and like the stipulations that shows have to work around that they are they're realities for you right and so I think that that makes sense that that comes to your head and I think I, I've talked to some people about how just even studying something, like I know I've talked to some classmates about how studying musical theater, for example, it's very difficult to then go see any musical theater show mm-hmm. 
and talk with somebody afterwards and align on the experiences that you had, which is good because it makes for a great conversation, right? It's like, oh, you noticed this, and I was completely absorbed in the thought about the 20 people who came down as ghosts, right? Or I was completely absorbed in kind of why he chose to make a cross there or like have this reaction to the line, right? And it makes for a great conversation, but it certainly is difficult to not be thinking analytically yes. about the things you're seeing instead of just taking it in, right? And like not feeling like you're processing it while it's coming in. Well, and it's also, it's, it is very hard for me to like, for lack of a better way to put it, like tr- shut off my music director brain. Meaning, and here's the thing, most of the time when I see shows, like especially on Broadway, they're usually happening at such a high level and there's so many talented musical music directors out there that usually it's easy for me to just um, get swept away by the show because usually the music direction is on point and the cast is great and all that. But I also have those moments where I'll see a show and I can feel an actor struggling with a, with like a a certain note or a certain phrase. I'm like, oh God, I could fix that. I could help them. I want to, uh, and it's like, it pulls me out of the show. Not because it's even necessarily a problem. Like it's not even like, ooh, they went really flat. It's not, it's not often something obvious. It's often just like, oh, I can hear they're running out of air. I want to help them. You know, that it's hard for me to turn that off. Things that many average audience members wouldn't notice because it's not even things that are necessarily like quote problems or I can hear like, oh, that thing they're doing is going to fatigue them in three weeks from now. They're going to lose their voice. I want to stop. I want to, I got to fix that. I got to change their placement, you know? Um, and I kind of can't help myself, but it's, you know, there's nothing to be done, but it's like, that is, it does. Sometimes that stuff does make it hard for me to just go blindly and consume things. I'm, I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at just being like, Charlie, just go and be a, be an audience member, be an observer, but sometimes easier said than done. Have you talked to other music directors about that? Like, do you, have you heard similar stories? Oh yeah. I think it's pretty universal, you know? Do you think, because this fact that you you love to have that analytical part of your brain on because it clearly feeds mm. you and inspires you, right? Because you get to keep seeing things and thinking about your interpretation of something, which is such a valid mm-hmm. way to want to look at something. How does that fit in with multitasking or co- like switching contexts? Like, because you said that primarily you do music directing, conducting, and that oftentimes has a location associated. Maybe you go to the theater, you go to the show, but when you're talking about sometimes you transcribe or sometimes you work in other areas, right? Oh, yeah. Are you able to, like, because you're so inspired, is it something, like, to always be creating, you're so inspired, is it something where you're able to focus all your energy on on the transcribing right then? Or is it something where you have to block off a certain amount of time? Is there some bleed in? How does that work? It's hard. I will say that the I have such a love-hate with doing the arranging work and the transcribing and all of that kind of stuff because it's what I've learned about myself and Lord, this quarantine has uh, solidified it, um, is that I don't, what I love about what I do is the collaboration. And I love, and the thing is, I still love the music and the creativity behind arranging and orchestrating and whatnot. I love turning on that part of my brain and thinking about what something should sound like and thinking about how to make, how to make it sing. And, you know, whether it's a vocal arrangement, whether it's a a band arrangement, whether it's just a conceptual musical arrangement for a song and how we're going to shape it. I love all of that. And I really love it when I'm like sitting around a piano with a composer or a director talking about it and figuring it out and getting inspired by it. And then the, pro- the, the bulk of the process becomes writing it down, which just takes a very long time. 
and is a little tedious. And it's not even that I mind the tedium of it. It's just that it's such a solitary solo experience. And I, I get really bored of myself and I get really bored of being alone. And that's, what's been so hard for me in quarantine too, is like the amount of time spent alone. So for me, that's, what's hard is I don't like, you know, I keep joking when we have AI and I can just sort of have an idea and then put my hand on some, I don't know, some device that looks like those eighties sharper image things where the, you know, the things hit the glass and it goes and then spits out sheet music. Then I would do a ton of arranging. Yeah. It's like a long plane ride is a great time to get work like that done because I'll just, you know, if I have to do like some cross country flight that would normally be, you know, daunting, like, what am I going to do for six hours? And like, I take that computer out, I start working and you're on a plane. So you have no distractions. Right. And the next thing I know, I'm like, we're landing, you know, go back, go back. We'll just make circles. Exactly. Exactly. Have you been doing any work with like virtual meetings online? And if so, like how are those any sort of substitute for the kind of in-person collaboration? Oh God, it's so hard. I go back and forth very early on. I got asked to work on some demos. There's a show that I've been associated with that was supposed to happen at Barrington Stage this summer. It's a new musical um, with a a score by Zoe Sarnak, who I think is just incredible. I love her stuff. And um, the show is all the brainchild of Josh Burgoss, who I really, really love. And um, it's it was such an exciting piece to be a part of. We did like a two week dance lab back in the fall. It's a dance based show, but with a lot of music in it. And um, she had written some new songs that they wanted to make demos of. And this was just as quarantine is starting. And so I was like, of course, I'm so excited to have something to work on. And I just I I was all over the place emotionally about it because there were times that I was like, I am so grateful to have, you know, this thing to work on. I'm so grateful to have some creative outlet. I'm so grateful to have something to do tomorrow when I, when we're going to have this zoom rehearsal or whatever it is. So it really saved me emotionally having that. But on the flip side, it was incredibly frustrating. I was like, this is not how music is supposed to be made. You know, it's all in a vacuum. There's no collaboration about it. It's like, let me map out a tempo chart with clicks and then I'm going to put a piano part down as a guide track all alone in my apartment. And then I'm going to send it to someone else and they're going to add percussion. And then I'm going to send it to someone else and they're going to add guitar. And then we're going to send it, then we're going to get that mix. And then maybe I'll redo the piano so that it's less of a guide part and more of a piano part. And then we're going to get a mix down that we like. And then I'm going to do plunks for the actors and see if we can like sing through their stuff and see if they're on the right path or at least clarify things. And then they're going to send us stuff and we're going to give them notes and they're going to have to go re-record it and they're going to send it back. And then how do we get these group vocals to line up? And then it's all this editing and it's all this stuff. And it's, it became hours and hours and I mean, tens, hundreds of hours of work for a product that's like fine, but not as good as it would have been if we'd done it live in a studio. And I was like, this is the kind of thing that pre COVID would have been like, Hey guys, we got a rehearsal room on Friday from two to four, come by. I'm going to, we're going to, I'm going to plunk through the songs, play through the songs. We'll sing through the songs. We'll talk about them. And then next week, we've got a rehearsal, a a recording studio booked for three, four hours. The musicians will be there. We'll go through each song. We'll put it down. It would have been like two afternoons of my life, and it would have sounded phenomenal. Right. It's just the weirdest, weirdest time. And it's like specifically designed for, you know, by definition, live entertainment is the business of bringing large groups of people together. Yeah. And I'm not saying that you can't make music that way. 
Um, but it's a different kind of music and it's, you know, music that is in, that's fundamentally going to be a little more electronic based. That's going to be much more quantized on a beat that, you know, that kind of stuff you can pull off in a vacuum. Um, but it's just all really, really hard. What I'll say, and I, I know that I, I don't mean this to kind of invalidate your frustration about it and the, the kind of difficult roller coaster of it is as somebody who has watched a couple of those style of things, right, where it's music put together in this virtual collaborative way, I've, I've really felt lucky that there are people like you and people like those artists you work with who I'm lucky that I get to enjoy the fruits of that labor. And I realize that it, it must be hundreds of hours. And mm -hmm. I think it's, thank you for bringing up that fact because I think that it's easy to look at something like that and say, oh, cool, they recorded their Zoom session, right? It was just they like pressed exactly. the record button. And it's like, it's so much more than that, right? There's so many little pieces yes. that come together, so many people who are collaborating, people who aren't seen on that Zoom call, right? Who you don't see on those videos. Yes, people editing and the people, yeah. And I'm sure I'm not the only one. I'm sure I speak for a whole host of people that are really grateful that when we can't have that physical intimacy that live performance requires, we do we do what we can with those sur the surrogates that exist. So, thank you for that. Yes, well, you know what? So I I came around a little bit because I was going through my tirade with it was actually a music director friend of mine, and um, I was just like, oh God, I just can't with these anymore. I'm like, can we just stop? Like, you know, if I turn on if I get one more link and I see the Brady Bunch and I, like I'm gonna scream, and he was. Uh, and he said to me, I was like, it's not how music's supposed to be made. And they're also compromised and blah, 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 blah. And um, he said to me, yeah, but it's not for us. It's to, to bring people joy who are having a hard time right now. It, you know, it's to help the people who normally are in the audience at theaters and are really and are alone and are isolated and are sad. And this can bring them some joy and make them feel connected to an art form that they love. And when he's put it that way, it made me come around to it a lot. It is a good thing, but it's also just hard and it's it's a good way to keep people connected and it's a good way to try and keep the fire burning as it were. But it's also, it's a reminder that it's not a sub, it's not a substitute for the real thing. And it could be something where we see it come into like, I agree, right? They're clearly different beasts. They're different things. What could be interesting is maybe we'll see it become more of a, a balance between the two where it's just that the digital thing exists with more of a presence, right? There's more of it out there, but it doesn't exist as a substitution for theater. It just exists as an alternative, right? And I think that those two things are, they're, they're very different in a very fundamental way, which is you have a choice versus it's your only option. I will say what's interesting to me, even before the shutdown, just the last like few years when there's been so much digital content out there and we're so oversaturated and everything's these sound bites, right? It's like, it's you, you no longer buy an album or a CD or whatever. It's like you go on your Spotify and you add that one song that you like to your playlist. And you know, you watch the little clip that someone sends you on YouTube and you get bored because it's five minutes long and you're like, can't you send me a two minute thing? And we're watching everyone's stories on Instagram and we're used to this like fleeting, fleeting tight, you know, constant consumption of these like little bits. And when that trend started, a lot of people were thinking this is going to be the death of live theater because it can't compete. But what's interesting is that theater has become so much more popular and successful in this era. And I think it's because it's almost like an unspoken backlash to that, where people are as much as and I'm 
I want to say guilty of it too. I don't even feel guilty about it. I think it's fine, but I consume a lot of that content. I watch my friends' Instagram stories. I, you know, have my Spotify playlists. I do all that stuff, but I still love going to a theater because it's, we're so bombarded with content now and it's all fleeting and it's all watch it for five seconds and post a comment and reshare it and this and that and tag it and whatever, but it's not, you're not fully present and engaged with it the way that you are with something live. I mean, theater is the only thing left that I can think of with the possible exception of group fitness, which is my other thing that I love, which was also shut down, um, where you enter that room and you turn off your phone and you put it away and you don't look at it until you leave. And you are present with a group of people sharing a, a common experience in the dark. It can't come back soon enough. That's all we can say, right? Um, and you gave me a great in with what you were saying before about about Instagram, about social media, and about that short form, ephemeral style, fleeting content. And one of the things I do love to hear people's different thoughts about and just their different perspectives on is social media overall, right? And how that form and that ubiquitous thing that is now just ingrained in some way into everyone's life, whether it's somebody who just goes on to see what their family is up to or somebody who is a content creator, right? And is there because it's the thing they love to do and the way that they make their living. I know it's because now it's monetized, which is also crazy to me, but you know. Right. Yeah. And it's, I think that everyone has a different way of interacting with it. And like you're saying, you, you watch your Instagram, your friend's Instagram stories. Um, but I'd also love to know is, is social media ever something that comes into your work in a creative sense? Like where you share the things that you're working on? Sometimes, but not so much. If anything, I feel like it's its own weird sort of sad is the wrong word but to me it almost feels sad like now it especially in covidia um it feels like in some ways it's the only creative outlet i have coming up with some little clever instagram story or whatever so i'm like fully committed to it i have such a love hate with it because it's like it's fun to go on and watch those stories it's fun to sort of create them here and there if you have something funny or fun to say or you can capture a funny moment that happened to you during the day but it also i don't know there's something about it that just feels so curated. Like we have this weird, everyone has like their real life and then their Instagram life. That's like basically based on look how perfect my life is. I don't know. It's fun, but you have to take it for what it is that it's fun. And it is this fake version of people's lives that they're putting up to show how perfect they are. And, you know, no one's really showing the hard times. No one's like, I'm having a hard day on their story. Everyone's just like, look how cute I am. Look how perfect I am. Look how thirsty I am. I mean, it's like it, part of me is like, as long as you know what it is and as long as you take it for what it is, you, it can be fun, but it's not real. And I think what's tricky, especially now that we're in this mode where we're all so isolated from each other and like, it's one of our main tools to stay in touch. It's like, I wish people would be a little more real on it. Or I wish that, I don't know. I just think it. I, that's to me what's dangerous about the time that we're in now is that it's, you know, one of our only means of connecting is this thing that's super fake and super curated. And I think it, I wonder how many people out there are having an even harder time than they would be because, you know, it's like, look how great everyone else's lives are. And I'm still here in my apartment or whatever it is. I don't know. I use social media a lot. I got really into photography. <laughs> I know that sounds so silly, but like I got um, no. during quarantine, I would go for these epic walks every day and I would always try and find the beauty and see the beauty. And I would walk through Central Park and I walk through Riverside Park. And um, 
I would take all these pictures and I would sort of, that was the bulk of what my Instagram story was. And what's interesting is like, I would get more, for lack of a better word, like hits on that or people being like, oh, I miss New York or I'm stuck at home. And this makes me like, I'm, I get such joy out of seeing your Central Park photos and whatnot. So it's like, that sort of kept me going because that's actually, re that is real. Do you think that that gratification that you get from people really genuinely enjoying like pictures that you're taking or things that you're posting, does it feel akin to the same gratification you get when you are playing music or when you get to do those things that you love with other people? It feels much closer to it than when people respond well on Instagram to like some, you know, thirsty photo, you know what I mean? <laughs> Cause that's all part of just the sort of Instagram game. Right. But like, yeah, that, that real connection with someone about something really beautiful and opening up a real conversation about, you know, yeah, I've been struggling in quarantine. Me too. Right. What, you know, I went through a rough period where I was just, I'm not, a. am generally a very happy person. I'm always a see the bright side of things person. I'm always, a, and I, there was a, a stretch late spring, early summer where I was just having a hard time. And I would go through these depressed phases where I would just, it wasn't about anything in, in particular. I wasn't like, I'm sad about X. I'm sad about Y. I mean, I had anxiety the whole time. Uh, but I, would have these random things where I was just like out of the blue, I would have some crying fit that I, and I would just be like, I don't know what this is about. And I sort of dared to be vulnerable and mention it to a few friends of mine. And like every single one of them was like, me too. Wait, it started like two weeks ago. And I'm like, why are we not taught? I mean, and then I guess we were talking about it, but it was like, why is it not a thing that people more readily talk about? I mean, it, that, that kind of real connection is, is hard now, but it's also easier now because everyone's in such a vulnerable place. And I, my optimism is I want us to all use this for good, not evil, use this time to try and connect, find ways to connect remotely that are more genuine and that are more, you know, d deep than just like a surface, like, Hey, how are you? Okay, cool. Great. Look at this new, look at this new muffin I bought at this bakery. Let me tag it. Let me, you know, it's like, whatever it is, you know, to have more meaningful connection. One theme that I've, I've kind of been talking with some people about is what are the silver linings that come out of something that's so tragic and terrible like this? And mm -hmm. if one of those is that we get to a point where we feel more comfortable with open emotional honesty on these platforms that don't necessarily incentivize that all the time. Yes. That would be a great, that would be a great silver lining. I mean, we had gotten very shallow as a people before this started. And part of me thinks part of the reason cosmically in the universe that this happened was to take us all down a notch and sort of say, be real, stop being so, you know, I mean, our world was about the Kardashians, you know, it was about money is everything. And look at this trashy excess and look at this, you know, look at this thing I bought and look at this thing that I'm wearing and look at this meal that I'm having. And it was all just like, cause everything was good. Everyone was doing pretty well. And, and we were all just saying, show it off, show it off, show it off, show it off. And it was like, it was not, and it sort of morphed over time. It wasn't like someone flipped a switch, but it took this for me at least to step back and be like, what were we doing? That was so gross and it was so not real. And so not what I care about, but that was what was becoming valued especially because of this fake curated Instagram life that was like taking over, you know? Is there something you 
listen to or read or watch that you found helps you get out of that brain space? I think I try and just connect to anything real that's around me, which probably should be creating my own stuff in a way. But it's funny. Everyone's like, I have some friend who was like, oh, now that you're in quarantine, are you just playing your piano like for hours and hours and hours and hours a day? And I was like, literally haven't played it once. Partly because it's triggering because it's like I want to be doing it with other people. Yeah. Also, I do suffer sometimes from that weird thing where, you know, growing up, all I wanted to do was play the piano and make music and sing and um, act and whatever else. But um, And then once it becomes your job and you spend so many hours a day doing it for your job, not that I stopped loving it, I'm still thrilled to make music on the job all times, but I don't do it off the job very much, which is interesting. I think it's common, so I'm not trying to like break it down to some character flaw in myself, but it is uh, just a weird and interesting and fascinating thing to me that I'm like, so I can only enjoy it when there's a paycheck involved or is it just that, or is it like, you have to pay me to do that? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Or is it that thing of it just, it consumes enough of my day that I, that it fuels it, you know, it's able to be fueled through my work. And in a weird way, it's almost like, I don't know, it's almost like nice to take this breath and take this break to reconnect to the creativity behind it, you know? Because when you're doing it day in and day out every day, it's easy to sort of lose track of the creativity in that because um, you're kind of called on to be creative somehow. So it's like not doing it for a while, like lets you re replenish that creativity tank. <laughs> the way I've heard other people describe it is that there's, it's almost like exercising a muscle where you, you have your music love and it's also something you do on a regular basis because you love it and because it's your job. And we, we have to, in the physical sense, and I guess, right, like you said in your group exercise, right? So maybe we can make the connection there, but like we, we have to not over strain any muscles and mm -hmm. just in a similar way, if we over exercise our passions, then they get strained in some senses or they could, right? There's a danger of that. I don't want to, obviously I can't diagnose and I don't want to try to put that on you, but that maybe that's one way to think about it. I don't know. Yeah. I'd love to hear what people are enjoying right now. And if you have any recommendations of mm. anything that's like anything you've been watching or reading or enjoying that you would want uh, to pass on and to recommend to other people. God, it's tricky. Cause like I said, I have not been consuming a lot of content and everyone was like, you need to be watching stuff. You need to be watching stuff on TV. But um, and I have this huge watch list because people keep recommending stuff to me. And then I, I've gotten through like three things out of 30. Um, you know, I really loved Dead to Me on Netflix. And I just got through, which I ended up loving, Succession on HBO, which like uh -huh. it was crazy. Multiple people were raving, 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 raving about it to me to where I was like, I better watch this. And I think each season is maybe 10 or 12 episodes or something like that. And it was about episode five or six of season one that suddenly I was like, wait, whoa, it's like something happens. And then all of a sudden, like, now I am in. Oh, nice. And then I loved it. But like for anyone who's thinking about it, know that you're going to have to push through a lot of exposition. Okay. So I recommend that with hesitation. And I'll go through phases where I'm like, what do I do? And I'm stuck. And then I'll just randomly get on some internet rabbit hole, YouTube deep dive with some artist that I love or some show or some something and then I'll be like up all night watching video. I mean, it's like I'm all over the place. I'm all over the place. All over the place, but making some stuff that like like we said before is something that I know I'm grateful for. I know a lot of other people are grateful for. So yeah. 
So thank you for doing that. I really appreciate it, Charlie. Thank you. Of course, thank you for having me. Thank you again to Charlie for taking the time to talk. All Charlie's recommendations are in the show notes, which are available by visiting our website, which again is creativeconsumptionpodcast.com, or by looking in your podcast app. The app is also where you can follow or subscribe to the show, which is the best way to stay tuned for future episodes. And we have some really great guests coming up, including someone who's actually worked with Charlie before. And we'd love for you to hear their thoughts when those episodes drop. So until next time, thank you all for listening. Stay safe and be well.